I shoot 40 grains of black powder. And then believe it or not, I use cream of wheat as a filler to fill the rest of the cylinder. So it fills up that gap. That way I'm not using a honking load of black powder. listening to the muzzleloaders podcast the show where we talk about anything and everything black powder how's it going everybody it's darren with the muzzleloaders podcast and we are back again with another episode and i have been wanting to record an episode about muzzleloader pistols and black powder revolvers for a long time and we even actually sat down and recorded one but it's just not something that I have a lot of experience with, and so we ended up not posting it. And uh, But I was able to locate somebody on Instagram who has all kinds of knowledge about it, and uh, seems like a really cool guy. This is actually the first time we've had a conversation, so I'm excited to get to know him. Uh, his name is Colin Elam, and some of you guys may follow him on Instagram. Um, but Colin, thank you so much for joining us today, taking time out of your evening to talk about black powder. Yes, sir. Thank you, Darren, for having me on. It, it is a, an honor to be on the podcast. Thank you so much. It The pleasure is all mine. And like I said before, black powder revolvers are something I just don't have a whole lot of knowledge on, you know, and something I'd like to have knowledge on, but there's a lot to know and there's a lot of history behind it. And um, it's just with all the things that I got to keep track of around here, it's something I've never had a chance to really look into. But I love to learn, and I'm excited for you to teach me and teach our listeners about some of these things. But um, before we get too far into that kind of thing, um, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, what kind of stuff you like to do on Instagram, and that kind of thing. Well, uh, I uh, what I do for a living, I uh, I am a truck driver for a steel company called Tyner Metals. I drive like the single axle trucks that hold about fifteen thousand pounds. Uh, I deliver steel kind of all over West Texas. You know, it's, it's not, not too hard of a job. I, I rather enjoy it. Uh, my manager is someone I actually went to high school with, so that's always good to know someone when you're working. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's just kind of what I like to do, and that's, that's what I do to make some money, you know, make a living right now. And as far as Instagram, I, I like to post a lot about firearms and uh, just mainly black powder stuff. That's been my love for a long time now. And I also post a little bit of political stuff here and there just to keep everybody that follows me and myself up to date with what's going on in our country mm -hmm. and to try and spread, you know, black powder firearms, muzzle loaders along to other people that might be interested in them. Totally. Yeah. And I think one of my favorite things that you do is the, um, the gun table talk videos. Um, is, that yes, what, is that what it's called? Gun yeah. Table gun talk. table talk. Yeah. Those are super nice. And, and for those of you guys listening, uh, definitely recommend you go check out Colin's Instagram. Um, what's the what is your specific Instagram handle for so that people can find it? Uh, if you just go to search and look up uh, the Musket Man or Colin Elam, mm -hmm. which is or uh, my uh, Instagram tag is the Elam Boy six five nine eight, so you should be able to find me. Okay, yeah, and definitely recommend you do that because he has a lot of really awesome content doing um, basically just short videos talking about uh, different black powder revolvers, um, different guns of all kinds and, uh, just the history behind them and a lot of that sort of thing. And so, uh, we're going to do an extended 
gun table talk here today um, and talk about a few <laughs> different uh, revolvers that that we have lined out for you guys. So, but before we do that, so how long have you been shooting black powder? You said that you've been, um, you know, passionate about black powder for a long time. Have you been in, into it since you were a kid? I have been shooting black powder firearms for about 11 years now. I nice. started about 13 years old. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's always fun when it's a passion. I, I think I started, I started dabbling with, with uh, black powder when I was like 14. Um, and then, when I started working here, when I was 16, the passion kind of just started growing and growing until it's kind of gotten to where it is now. And, um, hunting is my main passion, but muzzleloader hunting specifically is one of the things I love most. And, uh, just finished up, a, you know, a muzzleloader hunt here about a week ago. And, um, it's just, you know, there's something about it, you know, there's something about black powder that just really speaks to who we are as Americans, you know? Oh, I completely agree. I mean, if you if you look back to, you know, the founding of our country, it was those weapons were used, the muskets and the rifles, to help build this nation. So that, that's mm-hmm. where it kind of hits at home for me, and that's really how I started to get into it. It's because I grew up in a very patriotic family, very American family, and that's what just hit right at home for me. Like, whoa, that's, these are the weapons that were used to build this nation. So yeah. that's kind of where I sit on that. Totally. Totally. And is there, is there a specific section of black powder that you're really passionate about? Like I see a lot of pistols and things on your Instagram. Do you like to use, uh, like, do you go to rendezvous and that sort of thing too? So, uh, the most I'll go to is, uh, I'm, I'm not far from Lubbock, Texas. So we, I'll go to gun ranges and stuff like that. But as far as like, uh, outings, like, uh, not really there's not a whole lot going on especially in the black powder world around here mm-hmm. in west texas uh plenty of people shoot them but there's not as many places that they have like a uh, wood block or anything like that so i haven't had the opportunity to go do that yet but i hope to do that in the future and most of where those are taking place are in different states and are kind of yeah. far away so unfortunately can't make those yeah, it's tough. And I've actually talked to several people down in Texas and um, they've kind of said a similar thing. A lot of people will start their own sort of start their own, you know, whatever, whether it's a competition shoot or whatever, um, because there's not as much in that area. Uh, but like where we are in the Northwest, we have like the Oregon Trail that comes through here. So there's a lot of rendezvous right. up here. And so I'm we're kind of spoiled. There's probably three, three or four rendezvous <laughs> within like a couple hours of my house that I just go to when I get the chance, but this year kind of sucked. I wasn't able to make it to a single rendezvous that, because it just like, it didn't work really? out. Like my sister got married on one of them. And then the other one, I, it, I ended up driving across the country. And so it's just like these random things came up and just prevented me from going to any of them this year, which was a kind of a bummer, but, um, you know, at least I got to do some muzzleloader hunting and I shoot a lot of muzzleloaders around here anyways, just by the nature of what I do here at muzzleloaders.com. So, <laughs> I try to spend. Oh yeah, yeah. I try to spend a lot yeah, of time you, at the range. Yes, sir. So you you're definitely burning some powder. <laughs> yes, yes. As much as I can as we can afford to burn right now, because it's like you know we have we have we're trying to get it to our customers. It's tough to find, and it's like well we kind of need some oh, to yeah. make content, you know. So it's like this this balancing act of how much can we use, right. how much do we send. Um, but you know it's it's helpful to to have the you know content and things like that. I think to be able to you know, point people in the right direction when it comes to, 
you know, where to start out. Cause a lot of the people that we're dealing with are on the inline side of things and they're just, you know, they're buying their first muzzleloader. They're looking to hunt and, you know, helping those people along the way. I actually just had a long conversation with the guy on Instagram today. Um, his first time getting into muzzleloading and, uh, he had all kinds of questions and being able to have that, that knowledge of just time behind at the range to pass on to people that are trying to get into the sport that we're passionate about is really, really helpful. So. Oh, absolutely. There, there's been times I've gone to, uh, you know, I'm the only one in my family that does it. Like I, I had to self teach myself everything. Uh, I'll go to outdoor gun ranges and everybody's just turning their head, looking around like what's that <laughs> puff of smoke? Like they had, they hadn't seen anything like that. And mm-hmm. you know, it, it's really cool to share the information and knowledge that I know onto people that are just maybe they don't shoot them but they're just interested and that that's i love doing that That, that's just a lot of fun for me yeah i agree sharing the passion you know i'm i'm actually the only one in my family that shoots muzzleloaders and uh, my dad and i went out last weekend and shot my new 58 caliber and that was the first muzzleloader he'd shot since he was 12 years old and i was like that you know it's kind of cool to be able to just kind of share things with your family and um, especially with muzzleloading, it's something that's just so near and dear to my heart to be able to kind of pass that along to other people. And it's like, hey, this is cool. You know, it's fun. And um, I think especially on the hunting. For me, you're going to find as we go throughout the show, things are probably going to end up circling back to hunting because that's like my main thing I love. Um, but black powder hunting specifically has become a massive passion of mine just because it, it adds a specific challenge and um, – it ha- it's challenging like archery, but I like walking around right. with a gun rather than a bow. I much prefer guns to bows, just aesthetically <laughs> and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, Absolutely. I- I've shot crossbows and bows, bows and arrows in the past, but to me, it's just you can't beat an old smoke pole, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Do you, mo- do you do much with center fires, too? Uh, I have owned... Uh, in the past, I owned a CVA model and a Traditions model in line that, you know, was your, you had to use the shotgun primer to set it off. You could use loose powder, patch and ball, bullets, or the powder pellet. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're actually very accurate. They're, they're not horribly expensive, especially if you're wanting to get into the muzzle loading and you want to try something simple. I re- that, that's a great way to start, I think. And, you, some of them, most of them, you can mount a scope on it if you mm-hmm. want a little bit more of a challenge for hunting. So, absolutely. I've owned two in the past, but for me, I just like the older stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think I found with myself, I kind of just, as I hunt more and as I use muzzleloaders more, I just kind of tend to, something about it, it's like, I you know, there's a lot of value in the inlines because I'm able to be more accurate um, because of just right. the, all the bells and whistles you're able to put on them. But something just kind of pulls you back to the traditional stuff, you know, it's like, ah, you know, I just really, I know I could hunt with this new inline, but I'd rather hunt with this old, you know, 50, like my 58 caliber, you know, it's like, ah, just something about it just kind of snags you, you know? Oh yes. I, I'm, I'm the same way. My first muzzle loading rifle wasn't in line, but same deal. I'm like, man, this is fun, but something's steering me in this direction to go get something with a wooden stock that's a little bit older percussion or flintlock Mm -hmm. yeah totally that's something that um that ethan so ethan from i love muzzle loading is uh you know one of my friends and we talk frequently about uh 
um, just that same thing about how you just kind of get pulled in the traditional direction and how uh, magical muzzleloading is, you know, and how black powder is something that can really just influence people positively. And that's one of his main passions is just kind of showing people how muzzleloading is something that is that should be cherished on on all levels. There's something for everybody in it. And, um, you know, it's it's something that anybody could really have a passion for, I think, whether you love art or hunting or shooting or whatever. Oh, for sure. It's, you know, even whether you're shooting an inline or an old style one, they're just, you can always, you can take your AR-15 out and shoot all day long and, oh, you know, this brand of bullet works the best. Mm-hmm. But there, like you said, there is an art to muzzle loading and the sky's the limit. It's whatever you want that works best for you. And that's what I like about it. Maybe this specific powder works better. Maybe that's this style of plant. Maybe this certain ball size, patch, whatever you're using it might be good for you, but someone else, it may not work so well. Yeah. But, and that's what I like about it. And in order to figure that out, you actually get to do the fun part and take the gun out and go shoot it. So that's, that, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, I agree. And that kind of, while we're on the subject of sort of load development, how does that play into revolvers? Because um, I have shot one black powder revolver and it was a long, quite a long time ago. It's been not fresh in my mind at all. So is there a specific load or do you have to do load development? Um, Because I know with traditional rifles, you can play with patch thickness. You can play with um, ball diameter, you know, powder charge, all that kind of stuff. Is it the same way with revolvers? So actually, it's a little bit different when it comes to cap and ball revolvers. And you're right, on the muzzle loaders, typically it's a lot easier to figure out the right powder load you want to use. And I like this patch, this ball, and then you've got it figured out pretty quick. But when it comes to round or uh, pardon me, cap and ball revolvers, it it goes a step further. There's a lot of different ways you can use it. Uh, you can use different powders. Some people use wads and then load a ball on top of it. Some people use Crisco on top of their chamber. You can load bullets. Uh, there's there's tons of different bullets you can use and even ball sizes as well. Uh, there's different calibers. And because all the cap and ball revolvers, and when it comes to the models, they're different. The cylinders are different sizes. They're different calibers. And that does affect on what powder charge you can use per gun mm-hmm. and what style works the best. Like you could use in the Walker, for instance, you you know, you could use 50 grains of black powder in that and shoot very well. But if you take an 1860 Army, you can't use that powder load. So you got to figure out a different concept that works for you maybe certain caps don't work as well that does fall into play with cap and ball revolvers as well so it the sky is the limit when it comes to them it, it, it is for muzzle loaders as well but cap and ball revolvers take it a step further yeah it really seems like it i mean um i i always thought mu- like part of the the complicated nature of muzzle loaders like having to figure all these things out is part of the appeal um, and so if it's similar with revolvers, I'm sure I would love them. So I might have to try and convince my boss to pull one for the marketing department so that we can, uh, <laughs> start practicing with those. So, um, but assume that I know that I know nothing and I have like the 1847 Walker, like you're talking about, what am I going to be doing to start out in, in your opinion? Well, if you're going to choose the 1847 Walker, which was the second revolver Colt ever made that was a success. It was a military gun. It was made to be mounted on horses. Texas Rangers carried them. And if you're going to use that one, it is a honking pistol. It's 
loaded, it's about five pounds. Like it's heavy Ooh. with a nine inch barrel. It's max charge was made to hold 60 grains of black powder, which is a lot for a revolver. Jeez. And oh yeah, it is like, it is a man's gun, a put, literal hand cannon. I put 60 grains in rifles sometimes. I think that was like, I was hunting with 60 grains this, this hunting season. <laughs> yeah. So just think about that. You've got that in the Walker, but you got six shots. Yeah. So it's crazy. It, it, it is crazy, but there, there's different things that fall into play because, uh, you know, just because it has 60 grains, that, that was the military charge. I don't shoot 60 grains in it because I want the gun to last because eventually you're probably going to blow out the wedge or the barrel and you'll have to replace it, which is easily replaceable. But if you want to keep all the same serial numbers and keep your gun in order, you've got to change the way you, uh, you load your revolver. So on my Walker, I shoot 40 grains of black powder, and then believe it or not, I use cream of wheat as a filler to fill the rest of the cylinder so it fills up that gap. That way I'm not using a honking load of black powder. Hmm. And like I said, you can you can use a wad on top of your ball, or you know, a lot of guys use bullets. It, it just depends on what you're looking for. Okay, so wads are something I've always been curious about because um, in talking to different manufacturers and things, the the wad like we most of the manufacturers i've talked to at least have recommended using like an oversized ball so if you have like a 44 cal use a 454 and that's going to help create your gas seal but there's also wads like we sell wads people use wads so what is the what are the two schools of thought there you still there darren yep Oh, sorry, I lost you for a second. Yeah, you're good. We can cut that part out. So, <laughs> okay. so 1929. I'll just make a note of it here. That way I can okay. jump right to it. So, did you hear what I said? Uh, yes, sir, I did. And then it, it cut out at the very end. Oh, you're good. So, uh, did, do you have a good understanding of what I asked? Or do you need me to repeat the question? Uh, yes, sir. Okay, sorry. All right. No, so, I got it. So, go ahead and pick it up and take it then. Okay, so the same concept when it comes to a muzzle loader, if you're patching your ball, it's, it's kind of the same concept. You get, you know, in a muzzle loader is to get a tighter fit on your round ball when that way it grabs the rifling as it's going down the barrel. Well, when it comes to the wide with the uh, cap and ball revolvers, it's not necessarily doing that. What it's doing is, one, once you press your ball down on top of it, it will expand, which creates a gas seal that way it will help you not have a chain fire, which what a chain fire is, is I cock the gun, I shoot, and this happened back in the day, and another chamber went off, which could damage the gun or, you know, scare the crap out of you. Mm, yeah, <laughs> so, seriously. So it also does that, and they're lubricated. So what that does is help, uh, help with your fouling between shots because, you know, if you're shooting six shots at a time, your barrel is going to get dirtier faster. Mm-hmm. So it helps to keep that fouling loose. And it, uh, like I said, just creates a gas seal. And it also uh, helps compress your powder to get more velocity and more pressure buildup. So that's another reason of the watch. Interesting. Okay, so that makes sense. Because my, my understanding of it prior to this was that you would use one or the other and that um, it was strictly about gas seal. But I didn't know about the whole chain fire thing. I never hadn't considered that before, but that makes a lot of sense. I could see that being pretty detrimental to your range day uh, having that happen. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, and you got to think, you know, that's what they went through back in those days. You might, there's, you know, you're in battle and your, your gun could blow up. I mean, you could shoot it because it, it was still experimental at the time. So, you know, you could shoot, have a chain fire and it could blow your barrel off or your gun's ruined. You probably wouldn't have been hurt. You might, your fingers might be stinging a little bit, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, it's just something they had to go through. And even with the modern cap and ball revolvers, if you do everything right, you'll have nothing to worry about that. But you don't necessarily have to use wads in your cabin ball revolver. Like I was mentioning earlier, a lot of people, and me included, I use Crisco. And that's where I just load the ball on top of the powder and put Crisco on top of the chamber to also help with the chain fire. And it will loosen up your fouling just what the wad does. So the wad is just easier. It's more convenient versus having to get your knife and Crisco the top of the cylinder. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Um, then does, does the Crisco have any like, um, like anti rust properties as well, or is it strictly about just preventing chain fires and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's just strictly to prevent, help prevent a chain fire and to loosen up your fouling. It does, it doesn't do anything to the gun. Uh, it might, you know, the grease might blow a little bit on the side of your barrel, but it's easily, you know, you wipe it off easy. And at the end of the day, you go clean the gun when you get home anyway. So it, there's no way it's going to do anything unless you just, left your gun in Crisco for a year, then yeah, there, you might have a problem. But <laughs> <laughs> if you're doing that, you probably shouldn't be doing that anyway. So nothing's going to yeah, help yeah, you, you pro- there. <laughs> No, you probably shouldn't be shooting those anyway, if that's what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so go ahead and take, so number, uh, I, I'm trying to cover all my bases with regard to, um, just the process of this. So what kind of percussion caps are you using? Um, most of, in my experience, at least that I've seen, most are using number 10s. Is that right? So it, it actually depends on what model gun you got, what caliber, whether it's a Uberti, a uh, Cimarron, Tieta. It just depends as well. I have some that come out of the factory that are number 10s and some that come out of the factory that are number 11. Mm-hmm. And most common is the CC. CCI number 10 caps, which those work great, but uh, Remington also makes some as well. I find those work better with cap and ball revolvers, and sadly, they're harder to find nowadays, mm-hmm. but you're you're going to have better overall performance, I think, with Remington, but it just depends. So, if you get, you buy your cap and ball revolver from the store or online, you get it, and you go, well, I want to change out the nipples to shoot number 11s you can do that and because they're all the same thread so it just depends on what you want yeah okay interesting is there any advantage to one over the other uh actually not that i can find i typically use number 11s for my 44s and number 10s for my 36s okay got it um so one thing i want to talk about so we have a few different revolvers lined out here um, and I want to talk about some of these, uh, specifically, you know, some of the history behind them, um, and anything that's kind of unique. Cause I'm guessing what you just lined out for us is kind of the general information that people are going to need when they get a revolver in order to shoot it. Non, not specific to their, to their model. Um, obviously there's going to be different, like right. different nuances with each model. So, um, if you're going to get one, it's probably a good idea to kind of research your specific model to make sure you have a good understanding. But as far as the general practices we went through, they're going to be things that people uh, are going to need. Is that right? Absolutely. Every gun 
uh, cab model revolver is unique in its own way. They have their own problems and it differs between models. So yes, I recommend if you're going to get a specific model and you're new to it, definitely do your research, go to YouTube, get online, just do all the research you can before jumping into it, not knowing what you're doing. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, so as we go through these ones here and, um, I had Colin pick these specifically cause they're ones that, uh, that he wanted to talk about. Um, I was wondering before we get into that, would it be possible for you to give me like a, just a brief, like nutshell of the history of black powder revolvers and kind of how we got from point A to point B in some of the key models that were involved in that, that timeline. Uh, yeah, I'd be glad to. I'll try to make it quick. That way it doesn't, because it's, you know, each model has like an hour long story and I'm totally. not going to do that, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just try to make it quick. So basically Samuel Colt was the, the founder of the revolver pretty much. Before that, there was a flintlock revolver, believe it or not, called the Collier. And it worked, but it, it got fouled up real easy. You had to manually rotate the cylinder with your off hand. They were dangerous. Sometimes they would blow up. So some say that's where Colt got his idea for his revolver. Some say he was on a steamboat and he saw the wheel turning in the gears. And that's how he got the idea for a revolving weapon. So his first gun would have been a Colt Patterson. And that would have been a five-shot revolver in thirty-six caliber. And it was real finicky. They were expensive. They were fragile. They were known to break, have problems. But it was his first gun successfully to come into the gun world. But the problem was it was really expensive. So Colt, surprisingly, actually, he went out of business because even the U.S. government didn't want him because they were just too expensive. But they were carried by the Texas Rangers because by that time, I think uh, – you know, the Texas Revolution had ended, and it was his own country. We were our own country for about nine years. And uh, Sam Houston actually had a bunch of them. And he gave them out to the Texas Rangers. And they were all used to their flintlock pistols and carbines. So, you know, you got to imagine that transition. That's what they've done their whole lives. And they're like, hey, yeah, we've got a new gun that's a five-shot gun. And you you would laugh at that person. you go, oh, no, there's not. There's yeah. no way. So, it, it was a major game changer in the firearms world because now instead of one boom and reload, it was one, two, three, four, five. And typically they would carry two of them. So that'd be 10 shots total. Yeah. So that was, and that was just a snap of a finger. That's kind of when it changed for Texas Rangers, kind of the start of it. So it, it was a, you know, major upgrade to firearms. So after the Colt Patterson, you know, had problems, they were known to break. Uh, the guy, we mentioned the Walker earlier. So a guy named Samuel Walker had some experience with Colt's Patterson's and he got with Colt said, I want to make a gun that's 44 can hold a six grain powder charge has a built-in loading lever. Cause the Patterson's didn't have built-in loading levers. So you had to disassemble the gun to load it, which was, Huge you know, pain. that that's hard. That takes forever. So that's when the Walker came out and he patented it in 1847 and it was six shot revolver. So you had one extra shot and you know, you went from a little small 36, this big honking 44, five, cam, uh, five pound pistol. And when you think of revolvers, you think of like Josie Wells and all them and they carry them in their holsters. Believe it or not, those revolvers were not meant to be carried on your hip. They were supposed to be on horses 
because mm-hmm. I mean, imagine carrying those as heavy as they are. You're it's like carrying two ship anchors <laughs> on your hip. You're not going to move very well. Mm-hmm. So that they just mounted them on the front, you know, with the horse and had two of them. Now you had twelve shots. But now since it's a forty-four, you could really reach out further and touch someone, and you know, instead of it just you know, not to be weird but like a quick hole you know oh, i've been hit it was more like oh he blew back five yards yeah he got hit mm-hmm. so like uh, you know it, it had some power but and you blew back it, five yards like, too because of all the recoil <laughs> oh yeah yeah oh yeah it, you know there, there was even some deals where the horses because they fired them on horseback the horses were get would got used to the pistols where they would lower their ears because they knew the gun was fixing to fire so hmm. Interesting. <laughs> believe it or not yeah so, but just like the Patterson, the Walker had problems as well. When you shot it, it had a weak uh, latch for the loading lever. So every time you shot it, the loading lever would fall down. So you'd have to slap it back up. That's inconvenient. Hurts your rate of fire. Uh, and uh, Colt made 1,100 of them. 1,000 were for the military, 100 were for commercial. And about a third of them blew up because, Man. you know, that's they're made out of raw iron some of them couldn't handle the pressures of black powder. So it, w- it wasn't uncommon for them to blow up and have to be sent back for repairs. So there was still plenty of room to fix Colt's problem, but it worked. It was a huge, huge advantage mm-hmm. at that time, at least for the Walker. So, uh, and uh, by this time, Colt had figured out all these problems and he came out with the Dragoon series. So the Dragoon series was basically, they took the Walker and they shortened it down cut down the cylinder about a quarter of an inch, went to a seven and a half inch barrel versus nine. And they added a latch on the loading lever. And I'm sure you've seen on some cap and ball revolvers, they have that latch at the end of the barrel for the loading lever that they came up with that to keep that loading lever from falling down. So by doing that, it increased your rate of fire. You didn't have to worry about that. Uh, They fixed the cylinders where they would rotate and lock perfectly in line with the barrel. Some of the walkers, if you cocked it too fast, even the reproduction, if you cock them too fast, you might throw the cylinder off balance and it won't hmm. latch. Interesting. So you got to, yeah, you got to be consistent when you're shooting a Colt Walker, whether it's by Colt or uh, Uberti, you got to have a consistent cock every time. If you try to Josie Wells it, it's going to throw the cylinder off and then you got to adjust it with your off hand. Interesting. So, yeah, by the Dragoon series, Colt had figured that out and fixed that. Like I said, latch on the loading lever. So now you had a quicker rate of fire because of that. The guns were more efficient and, you know, they were still big though. And there was a model one, model two and model three. They were all the same. And, and I'm just going to shorten this up. The difference was where they just, he fixed details along the line with each model. Mm-hmm. So they're essentially the same gun, just little details were fixed as he went through. Okay. And, they, like the third model Dragoon was the most popular. It was made up until 1860, right before the Civil War. So they were they were used widely in the military, and like I said, Texas Rangers carried them a lot. So, but it was still a horse pistol because you still had to mount it on your horse. You couldn't really put it on your hip, or else you know you'd hate to be that guy in that bat that fight. Like, oh, that guy's waddling around. Why is he not running? Well, oh, he's got two dragoons on his hip. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> So uh, you couldn't move very good with them. So after those, there was a time where people were like, we need to have a belt gun. 
We need to have something that could be mounted on your belt that's not heavy. So Colt, after the Dragoon series, came out with, uh, there were some other models, but his most famous one was the 1851 Navy, chambered in 36. So all he did was took that Dragoon and just shrunk it down even more and changed it to a 36 caliber like the Patterson versus a 44. So you had a functioning gun that was half the weight could carry on your hip or two of them because they're not they're not heavy they weigh about i think 3.7 pounds or something like that so it, it was a lot better and because it's a 36 you don't have as much power behind it so you, you have less recoil but you're going to have more velocity with that little 36 round ball flying through the air mm-hmm. so what are, the what are the, the timelines so like the patterson when was that like when was the dragoon series when was the wall i guess the 1847 walker but like when are these getting introduced as we're kind of moving along here Okay, so, and I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that in the first place. You're good, but, you're good. Uh, the, the Patterson, Colt actually developed the Patterson right after the fall of the Alamo, like not long after the Alamo fell in 1836, and then he, he patented it by 1839. And so that you have that time limit, because if, mm-hmm. you know, if you know anything about history, they're still using flintlocks at this time, Yeah, you know, on the frontier or military. So he patented it. About 1839, they didn't do well for about a, a couple years, up until probably 1844 they were still using them, or the ones that had the Pattersons were still using them. It wasn't like when it came out, everybody in the world had them. It was only a select few that did here in America. And after that, you had the Walker, 1847s when he patented. He made it all the way until the late 1840s. And by the Dragoons, I think it was about 1849 to the uh, 1848, 1849s when he started coming out with the Dragoons. It wasn't long after he developed the Walker because there was a lot of problems. So he knew he had to get on board quick to fix that. Mm -hmm. So those would have been about late 1840s. And like I said, he made them all the way to the 1860s, especially the third model Dragoon because it was the most popular. So you had the third model Dragoon all the way to 1860. But for nine years, there was also the 51 Navy that came out around the same time they were producing the Dragoons. So they were making both of those guns at the same time, essentially, all the way even past the Civil War. So, you know, by 1860, 1851 Navy had been around for nine years. Mm-hmm. So they were, they're still in the, those two gun models were in the same time period. So, like I said, 36 or 51 Navy came out. It was a huge success. It's seen as the most popular uh, revolver of the 19th century. Everybody loved it. They call it the Navy because uh, the Texas Navy and even the U.S. Navy were using it, and they loved it. So that's kind of how you got the name 1851 Navy. You had the patent year, and because the Navy loved it. By that time, you know, you had the you had the 51 Navy, which was just an upgraded version of Patterson that everyone loved literally everyone it was used on the frontier the wild west wild bill hickok carried two uh ones he had made just for him and he carried them all the way to the cartridge era so by the fifth by by 1851 all the way to 1860 people were like man we really love the 1851 navy but we want something that's got a little bit more stopping power so what Colt came up with, he wanted to go back to a 44 caliber gun, but still have the same size that's small enough to be carried on your belt. So uh, 
Colt went back and they first decided, well, we'll just bore out the 1851 Navy. They could do it with the barrel, but the problem was they couldn't do it with the cylinder because that chamber wall became too thin and the prototype actually cratered and blew up because the, mm. it was just too thin. It didn't work. So uh, Colt developed the 1860 Army that was the same size, but what he did was he expanded the cylinder. So he took the 51 cylinder and just made it a little bit wider so that chamber wall was thicker and could could uh, hold the pressure of the black powder with a 44. So his, his first models were what's called a fluted cylinder. So you know those little notches you see at the end of revolvers even today? You know, that he did that at first, but he did it from the front of the cylinder all the way to the back. Same thing with the walkers because they were just raw iron. The guns actually blew up. Hmm. So they, did, they didn't work very well at first. But it was a working design, and all Colt did was just fatten up the cylinder again, and they worked flawlessly. They were another one that was used on both sides of the Civil War and even past that as well. People loved them. So now you had the power of the Dragoons in a smaller pistol that you could carry versus having a horse pistol. So now you are you can carry one or two of them, and it's not heavy, and your rate of fire is increased because it's a smaller gun. You're not carrying, you're not trying to, like I said, aim a ship anchor. It's something that's way lighter. And that was a, you know, that's what led eventually to the cartridge era. That's why a bunch of them were in 45 caliber. It was because really the 1860 Army is what paved the way for that. So if you compare the two, both are great guns. But uh, if you want the bigger caliber, go with the 1860 Army. If you want the smaller one, go with the 1851 Navy. So the those the really the caliber is the main difference between the two then yes that's the main difference the original was a 36 and 51 in the the 51 navy there is uh some that they make that are 44 caliber and those actually didn't exist in the 19th century that was made for historic shooters like me and you and reenactors because people like the 44 caliber better so you can buy an 1851 navy in 44 it just wasn't the original caliber Got it. So style-wise, like today, because the calibers are kind of not what they were back in the day, style-wise, what are the differences between the 1851 um, Navy and the 1860 Army? So major difference, and it's easy to tell between the two, is if you just look at the cylinders, you can tell the 51's got a smaller cylinder versus the 1860. So that's a very big key to tell. Mm. Other than that, the frames and grips are the same. On the the 1851 Navy, it is an octagon barrel, so that's really neat. I think that mm. looks cooler to me. Yeah. And uh, the 1860 Army was stretched, and it was the smooth barrel. So that that's one key indicator how you can tell the difference because one's you know, uh, you know, it's got the flat sides, and one's a smooth barrel. You know, it's it's easy to see that. Okay, got it. And so. Um... And one other muzzleloader we had, or one other uh, pistol we had on here, was the 1858 Remington New Model Army. So, yes, sir. Um, assuming I know nothing because I don't, what are what are the differences between that and the 1860 Army? So, a major difference you can tell is the it was by Remington. They call it the New Model Army or the 1858 Remington New Model. So that gun was probably, it was also a cap and ball revolver, 
but it was the head of its time. It came out just right before the 1860 Army, but it was a little bit more expensive, and it wasn't as widely out there because Colt had already made a name for himself, so it would have been most Colt guns you would have seen Civil War and Frontier. Mm. So when they made the 58 Remington, one major difference was it still has an uh, – uh, it's a, a solid frame versus an open top. If you look at a lot of the early Cavalier revolvers, it's just the cylinder, then it meets the top of the barrel. There's no top strap mm-hmm. right there. So the 1858 had that, like how you see in most modern revolvers today. They have a top strap that meets into the rest of the frame and the barrel. The other Cavalier revolvers before that, they didn't have that. So that made the integrity of the gun way stronger. And they would have been in 44. There was some 36 models made, but generally you would have seen them in 44. So now instead of, you know, you just pop a wedge out, your barrel comes off of your revolver. Now you have to pop your pin out and take your cylinder out, but you still have a solid frame revolver. Mm-hmm. And mo- and it was used in the Civil War. And mainly by the North, you wouldn't have seen it in the South. And a lot of people liked that one more because they knew they had a sturdier gun that could handle pressures just a little bit more. And it, it was just it was just stronger. And versus the 1860 Army, you had to use loose powder and ball or paper cartridges to reload it. The 58 Remington, you just drop the loading lever, pop out the pin, the cylinder falls out. Your empty one. Mm-hmm. So it was common for them to carry one or two loaded cylinders and they just pop that cylinder back in close the pin and now you've got six more shots in just about five seconds versus taking five minutes to reload your cap and ball revolver so that was a major advantage if you did have a a 58 remington man yeah so i mean just super innovative at that time then oh absolutely it was way ahead of its time and by then that's when colt and other gun manufacturers that were making revolvers from then on, they knew that we have to make solid frame guns because that's just the way to go. So it kind of paved the way for solid frame revolvers not long after it came out. Yeah, and that's all you see now. There's nothing that, you know, all modern revolvers that use cartridges all have a top strap. You don't really think about it, you know. Right. Right, yeah. So it, it, that's, you know, that's just, it was, like I said, for its time, it was it, it would have been probably the most unique gun up into the revolver era that you would have seen and it Mm. probably would have been more expensive than your colt but you know you didn't have to worry about blowing out your wedge with the 58 remington over time because it's a solid frame now interesting so when did the transition from like cap and ball revolvers transition into cartridge revolvers so it wasn't too long after the civil war there was cartridge guns even during the civil war but they were real finicky they were made out of they they were uh, rim fire cartridges and i believe the 1860 henry had you know that came out at that time but they would have been like copper case they wouldn't have been brass very weak so that was like the first of you saw of hardened cartridges because it had been paper cartridges up until that point so it would have been around the uh, late 1860s, early 1870s is when you started seeing cartridges come on. And that's when you saw people going, well, you know, that's a lot easier versus having to load from the top of the cylinder with loose powder and ball, because mm-hmm. that's what most people did. You didn't have the luxury unless you were in the military to have paper cartridges. So 
by that time, people are like, whoa, that's way easier. He reloaded way faster than I did. Because imagine you're in a gunfight. You both shoot your six shots. And you're like, whoa, wait, give me 10 minutes. <laughs> He's already reloaded his revolver. So you're like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Man, that's so much, there's so much history behind it all, you know, and that I, I've said it often on the podcast, the history of firearms is, is coincides with the history of mankind and not, I guess, weaponry it, to extend upon that. But, um, Absolutely. you know, it, it, and especially the United States, I mean, the, the history of firearms really coincides with a lot of major events. You know, you see right around the civil war, you see a lot of these innovations happening and then, you know, same thing in oh, yeah. World War II, same thing in Vietnam. You know, all these different wars really tend to um, increase the level of efficiency and innovation that happens in the uh, firearms world, you know. And absolutely. And that's what truly got me into cap and ball revolvers because that, I believe, those guns were the ones that paved the way for multiple shot weapons and it maybe it you know it started with the bolt action then semi-automatics and then so on and so forth that's it had to start somewhere and this was kind of the birth era of even the guns we have today in our modern era so mm-hmm. that that i love the history about it yeah i do think it's interesting too how some things kind of innovation kind of just stop, stops in certain aspects but continues in others like like the top strap, like that's just is what it is. You still see that today, you know, 200 years later. And it's just, that's, is that's good. That's no need to change that. It's good. Um, you know, same thing with cartridges, you know, cartridge that, you know, people haven't really innovated on that for a long time. I mean, it's just a really solid design. There's nothing really better you can do with it, but in in the way that that stuff is utilized has changed dramatically. You know, you have all these different calibers and people are, able to hit targets consistently at a thousand yards you know it's just like right the utilization of all these tools that were invented and in a lot of ways um i guess you know not perfected but invented and of uh, the frame was perfected have been refined and honed to make um a lot of things today that are just unbelievable and would have been considered insane to somebody that you know invented these things oh absolutely i mean like i said i mean you gotta think if you look from the year 1800 to the year 1900, just a hundred years, you went from marching in formation with flintlocks and muzzleloaders to bolt action rifles, machine gun and semi-automatic handguns and other weapons as well. I mean, just mm-hmm. in those hundred years. Yeah. We actually, I mean, we have, um, it's not, I don't have it. My dad has it, but it's an eight, it's an 18 late 1800s is the serial number on it it's like 1898 or something like that and it's a 3240 lever action that shoots multiple you know it holds i I forget how many it holds but i mean multiple and a lever action is fast i mean that's as fast as a semi-automatic almost and it's just like to go from in 100 years from a flintlock to that is just crazy you know right it's just it's it's insane you know it's i think it's just it's crazy how you went from that to this in just even less than a hundred years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Cause you got to think if you're in the wild west, you're, you got your Winchester, but your grandpa was using musket. Yeah. Like it's, it, you know, it's crazy that change that transition in firearms. Totally. Yeah. It's wild. I think the history is fascinating and I'm really glad that uh, we're able to have you on the show because I think that that's the sort of thing that I really want to learn about. But unless you can really spend a lot of time reading and really digging into it, it's tough unless you or you have somebody that knows it that can kind of give you the 
the information in a more brief amount of time, you know? And so I'm sure you've spent hours and hours and hours researching all this stuff. Oh, absolutely. When I, when I first got my first cabin ball revolver, I thought I knew a lot and I didn't know Jack. (laughs) (laughs) I had to, I had to do lots of research, books, research watch thousands of hours worth of videos of different people shooting theirs what they like to do what they do and that's where you learn a lot you learn more of the history and how to become a better shot as well with these guns because like it's a puzzle Mm -hmm. it's art and that's again that's what i love about these guns it is and something that i think people don't realize is that shooting a single action revolver is so much different than shooting a you know a Glock, you know, it's a completely different form uh, that you're going to have to use in order to be accurate with it, you know? Oh yeah. Cause you know, with your Glock, you just go buy whatever brand of ammo you like with your 1847 Walker. You got to find the right round ball. You like the right powder, the right caps, you're using wads, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where you really learn a lot and it will help you become a better marksman. Totally. Totally. I completely agree. Um, well, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I really appreciate all the information that you've given to us. I mean, we have, you've absolutely, I mean, way more than I thought we were going to be able to get from this podcast. I, you knew a ton of stuff and I'm glad that we were able to have you on. Um, and if you guys that are listening to it, enjoyed this, let us know. And we'd love to have Colin back on. I'm personally fascinated. So please say that you like it so that we can have Colin back on the podcast and talk more about this kind of stuff. Um, but Colin, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us on the show. Absolutely. Darren, it was a pleasure and an honor to come on the show. I thank you so much. Awesome. Um, thank you for all of you guys listening. If you enjoyed this, like comment, subscribe on YouTube. If you're listening on audio platforms, be sure to leave a review. Uh, it really helps out our show a lot and we'll see you on the next episode.